want to ask you a question as we get started. Have you ever been in the middle of criticizing someone either out loud or in your own head or judging them and realize as the thoughts are moving through your mind that you do the same exact things? Yeah, sometimes, you, usually that typically goes one of two ways. Either you're like, I just, I cannot believe, and then as the thought comes to your mind, your own stuff, you're, you kind of tail off into a slight murmur. You know, I can't believe, I can't, maybe I do the same thing. You know? Or that we begin to figuratively move our behavior to a different, more likable category. True? So that might sound something like, I can't believe they, but at least I, right? Last week, uh, Jason, brother, you did a great job walking us through Romans 1, 18 through 32, and fantastic. And I really appreciated your labor and your seriousness about studying and delivering his word to us and talking to other folks in our church, it was a blessing. So keep it up. I tried to talk him into making it a two-part, and he could take this one, but he said no. But he was unpacking for us Paul's explanation that God's wrath against all unrighteousness in men and women is both fair and just. So Jason said, What does it mean that God is just in his wrath? It means that he is right in it. And that man is in fact guilty of sin and we deserve God's wrath. And that God is so holy that he must hate and punish all that is opposed to his moral character. One of my key takeaways from Jason's teaching was that when God directs his holiness and love at those, not just their behavior, but at those who suppress his visible and clear and perceptible and made known presence and truth. When God directs his holiness and love at sin, that sin completely comes apart. It gets destroyed in his presence. And therefore, because of a willful suppression of what is plain, a willful suppression of what is clear and visible and written on the hearts of all people, even those who don't have the law, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 20, are without excuse. So now as we transition... From Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2, Paul is aware that some people in his reading audience who do indeed have the law, they're tempted to roll their eyes at these Gentile pagan truth resistors of of chapter 1. And they may even be on the cusp of uttering, I cannot believe they, but at least I. And Paul, knowing that that is the progression of their possible thoughts, he interrupts that thought process with a therefore. Before they can even begin 
to put their thoughts formally together, Paul interrupts their thinking by saying, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So the Gentile ignorant truth resistors of chapter 1 have no excuse. Because through natural revelation, God has put himself in plain sight. He has made himself clearly perceptible. He has made his invisibleness visible. And whether the unrighteous care about God's standards or not, they will stand before the judge of the universe with the weight of their own willful unrighteousness. So he says in chapter 2, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. So even they, though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And their conscience, Paul says, actually bears witness to this. In other words, he's saying there's a standard that's imprinted. Then he goes on to say they either accuse or excuse themselves based on what? They either excuse their behavior or they accuse themselves on what? Based on the law, which is hard stamped on their hearts. And then he says in verse 16, on that day, what according, when, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So now again, as we come to chapter 2, Paul says to the religiously enlightened truth resistors, you also are without excuse. Careful about judging the pagans. He actually uses the same phrase here in chapter 2 verse 1 as he does in 120. It's the same kind of without excuseness. How is it that these who have God's law are actually resisting his truth, suppressing it? Because through special revelation, God has detailed the perfection, the complete perfection of his righteousness. He's detailed the condition of men's hearts and his judgment against all sin. But these who know the law have turned their knowledge of the law on their neighbor. How is it that they're resisting truth? Because they're using it as a utensil on somebody else's life and not their own. They have turned their knowledge of the law on their neighbor in pride and judgment rather than turning their knowledge of the law on themselves in humility and repentance in absolute gratitude for the good news of a righteousness that does not belong to them that comes through faith in Christ Jesus our King. True? They are far more comfortable looking at others' sin than looking at their own. Though they res- so they resist the truth applied to themselves 
while, while adeptly applying it to others. They too will stand before God bearing the weight of their own willful unrighteousness. So to these people, the Jew, Paul says, or for our purposes, the religious, he says in chapter 2, verse 18, 24. Church, I really want us to consider these words. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God, these are very religious people. These are people who understand God's word. And you know his will. And you approve what is excellent. Because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. A light to those who are in darkness. An instructor to the foolish. A teacher to children. Having the the law. The embodiment of knowledge and truth. When you teach others, do you not teach yourself? Is this not working on you too? When you preach to others, when you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor, the, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So to be clear, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is making a point that both the unrighteous pagan and the self-righteous Jew are justifiably liable to the wrath of God. Through our study today, some of you may be asking, well, where does that put us? Because, you know, our theology now would kind of put us, if we're born again in Christ, we're out of danger of receiving God's wrath. What's the application for us? We got to keep in mind that it is Paul's expressed purpose in writing this letter. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And his desire to visit with them was all hinged on his eagerness to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome. Remember? This is what his aim is. He's preaching the gospel. He goes on to say, to to you believers, you need the gospel again. And also to the unbelieving pagans, I'm hoping that some of them might come to Christ for his righteousness through my message. He is preaching what he earlier called the good news of God to this group of house churches. And we talked about this and many of whom claim to know God. Many are very religious people. And throughout the book, Paul's clear and logical and sequential detailed presentation of this good news of God is aimed at a singular truth, a singular reality. All people, the unrighteous and the self-righteous, are in eternal danger of God's wrath if they do not 
deal with the clearly known and willfully resisted sin that indwells them. And his prescribed antidote for that problem is a righteousness that comes from God alone. It's provided by God and obtained by faith the righteousness of Jesus imputed, transferred to all people. So it's true. In Christ we have His righteousness and therefore we are no longer in danger of the wrath of God. That is true. Yet this is very similar to why Paul is eager to preach the gospel even to believers in Rome. Or unknowingly for us to receive this gospel message. Because if these people who claim to know God are self-righteous and judgmental, and they apply the truth of His Word with more energy and enthusiasm to other people than they do unto themselves, then they need to either understand the gospel truly for the first time, or they need it applied to themselves all over again. Are you with me? If... If the people who are receiving Paul's message are saying, because we belong to you, we are outside of your wrath, that is true. But it should be made evident, and this idea that of being self-righteous and judgmental and applying the truth to others with more energy and enthusiasm than we absorb it in ourselves, if that is the characteristic of our life, then we need to come to Christ for the first time. And I am absolutely convinced that there are people who believe they understand the gospel, but their regular disposition is a judgment and a holding accountable other people with such great enthusiasm that they really have no clue what the gospel means applied to them. So hear the in-between lines speech of Paul. Paul desires to preach the wrath of God against the pagan person's unrighteousness so that they will turn in faith and gratitude and receive the gift of God's righteousness. And this will bring about what Paul calls the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Chapter 1, verse 5. And Paul's desire and his aim is to preach the wrath of God against the religious, self-righteous person so they will in turn turn in faith and gratitude of receiving God's gift of a righteousness that they think they have, but they don't. And this too will bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Among the nations. So let me put all my cards on the table. As I think about Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, I'm making an assumption on our behalf today, my church family. And I myself am included in this assumption. As your pastor and friend, as I assess the needs in our church, myself again included, And I consider the application 
of this passage for the purpose that we should be hearing God's word expecting to grow and change. I believe we are in far more dangerous, we are in far more dangerous possibility of being the self-righteous of chapter 2 than the pagan unrighteous in chapter 1. Is that a safe assumption? And based on that educated assumption, it's my job and privilege to unpack this passage in such a way that we see and are warned about the dangers of self-righteousness. Church, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ should change our lives, not this 15 years ago when we got saved, the truth of the gospel should change our lives today. That we would see the profound danger in a self-righteousness that wants to use the gospel, the God's word, his law, as a microscope on the lives of others rather than a stethoscope on our own hearts taking account of our own heartbeat. Our task together, church, in hearing God's word today is that we allow our hearts and our minds to be truly and accurately unpacked in a way that brings heartfelt, hope-filled repentance and glory in the good news of a righteousness that does not belong to us. You with me? We should be seeing our sin more clearly for what it is. And then, like we read together, rejoicing in a gospel message that has rescued a person such as myself. And we should worship differently. We should talk differently. Aiming at heartfelt, hope-filled Repentance, or as Paul says it, to bring about an obedience that comes from faith. Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 17 lists seven things that God hates. You know what's at the top of that list? Haughty eyes. What are haughty eyes? Haughty eyes are eyes that focus on the sin of others in judgment rather than on self in contrite spirit. And hear me. God hates. God hates those eyes. If you're prone to focusing on the sins of others more than your own, if you are hard on the sin in others' lives, but light on your own, you are in danger, I am in danger of the wrath of God. He hates haughty eyes. Jesus illustrates this passage very clearly in his teaching on the Pharisee, and the publican, the tax collector that we read together with Jason at the beginning. And in his parable, the self-righteous Bible toter 
uses the law on another person. And the unrighteous tax collector uses the law to see himself. Who goes away justified? In the story, Jesus intentionally makes his characters very clearly an unrighteous degenerate and a self-righteous religious elite. And he's doing that on purpose. Why? He's making a clear statement. I don't care about your religious pedigree. I don't care what church you have attended or for how long. I don't care how many books you've read. I don't care how many religious activities you're involved in. I don't care how reformed your theology. If the law doesn't drive you in desperate need for a righteousness that doesn't belong to you, that's only found in Christ, then you are not justified. If the law church doesn't drive us to a gospel that we rejoice in because there's a righteousness that we do not have for as long as we've been in church on our own. And if it doesn't drive us in joyful desperation to a need for the righteousness of Jesus, we're not justified. And so finishing the second half of chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. That's what we used to say on the playground. Whenever you point a finger at me, you got four pointing back at yourself. Remember that? Maybe you guys didn't say that. We didn't. Out east. (laughs) But he continues in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Two two key phrases in this verse, the judgment of God and rightly falls. He's contrasting you who judge. Now he's saying God's judgment rightly falls. God's judgment, the true judge, not you. And it rightly falls, not your distorted judgment that comes warped because you need people to do things for you, but God's perfect judgment rightly falls. And so again, the point that Paul is making in chapters 1 and 2 is that both the unrighteous and the self-righteous are certainly in danger of God's wrath. And so continuing in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you make that supposition? What do the self-righteous judge and the unrighteous pagan have in common? Both the unrighteous and the self-righteous are willfully blind to their own sin. Both the unrighteous and the self-righteous are not accidentally, they are willfully blind to their own sin. And their willful possession of sin 
in their willful possession of sin, they are put in the destructive line when God makes all things right with his love and his holiness. When God's love and holiness turn towards sin, it will be destroyed forever. To make this point even more clear in verses uh, 3, 10 through 18 of chapter 3, Paul quotes Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. So we're jumping into chapter 3. Paul continues to make this point throughout chapter 2, now into chapter 3. And again, he's quoting Psalms 14, 1 through 3. Verse 10, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, Paul is saying there's some inherent qualities of people who resist the truth of God, who willfully look in the sin, uh, at the sin of others or ignore what sin is altogether. There's, there's inherent qualities of those who resist the truth of God. Let me put this verse in personal terms so we understand the weight of resisting God's truth. When we are self-righteous, we are not seeking God nor His wisdom. It's all about ours. We turn aside to our own way. We are not redemptive agents bringing about the obedience of faith, but rather judges who in their hypocrisy cause Gentiles to blaspheme God. In other words... Without a gospel mindset, without understanding the good news of Christ as applied to us, we become absolutely useless. Our speech is self-serving, it's critical, it's toxic, and it's destructive. We leave a wake of relational turmoil and brokenness. We have no peace We become consumed with our own ways and means and nobody else's. The purpose of the law is to provide us with a tool. But it's not a microscope to be used in the lives of others but a stethoscope to check the condition of our own hearts. The purpose of the law is to help us see a need for a righteousness that we do not have and we cannot obtain on our own. So in verse 19 through 20 of chapter 3, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world 
may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the only thing the law can do. So as Paul preaches his gospel to us through his letter to the Romans. By the time we get to this point in his letter. It is his goal that whatever category we find ourselves in. Whether we're willfully unrighteous or whether we are self-righteously unrighteous. We should be terrified by the wrath of God that is aimed at the sin in our lives that we willfully ignore. And we should be desperate to receive a righteousness that we have no possession of and we cannot earn. By the time we get to this point in Paul's letter, it's his intention that we feel that way apart from Christ. Are you with me? Soon, God is going to destroy sin. Church, that... That's not a wishful hope. It's the truth. Soon, God is going to destroy sin. Don't be fooled. It's coming. His delay is not passivity. It's patience. And God wants His patient kindness to provide for us time to apply the word to ourselves and to turn. Not to apply it to other people, but to us. He's patiently waiting. It's coming. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Soon God is going to turn His white hot love and His holy gaze upon all sin, and it is going to be destroyed forever. What has cost Him and what has cost His people so much, He's going to unleash and focus His holy love on all that has destroyed, and it is going to be consumed. Good news, church. Yeah? It's going away. But the problem is, apart from Christ... We have that sin in us. We are under that level of pending doom. We need a righteousness we don't have and we can't earn. You feel the gravity of that? We should. We should feel the weight of our unrighteousness. If you have suppressed the truth of God for and exchanged it for lies, because you're consumed with thoughts of what you can get next, and it's all about you, and when you do get presented with God's rules, you rage against them. We should feel the weight of our self-righteousness. If you have suppressed the truth in your own life, 
because you are so busy applying it in judgment to others, you seethe at other people's sin and coddle your own? We should feel the weight of that. See, what we, we desperately should be, oh man, I've done that. I was walking out my driveway and I was asking myself, this is my kind of prayer walk out to my mailbox. It doesn't have any mail in it, but I'm going back and forth to my mailbox and I'm asking myself, am I more, more like the, the, the unrighteous pagan in one or the public, the, the Pharisee judge in two? Very easy for me to answer. I've told you this. I confessed this to you before. I bend towards criticism. My gift of insight turned on itself. All hell breaks loose on the people closest to me. Rob gets a whiff of his own flesh and I'm on a sin hunt in the life of other people. I bend this way. What's my hope, church? What's your hope? Do you feel the weight? Of your self-righteousness? What's your hope? Some kind of self-improvement project? Some kind of study that you're going to do? No, here comes our hope. Right on the heels of the passages we've just been reading. Here comes our hope, my church family. Here comes your rescue. It's one of the greatest conjunctions in all of Scripture. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. It's become real. It's not in you. The righteousness but. The righteousness of God has been made manifest. It's been revealed. It's separate from you. It's apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is this righteousness? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Okay, so I hope something is going on in your honky Caucasian white selves right now, right? So you might be locked down because of your skin tone and not, you know, showing some energy, but your soul should be doing backflips in your body right now. Church, but this truth should fundamentally change us today. In my mailbox walk, this passage should erase Rob's critical spirit. Erase it. Do you know how I get my critical spirit to go away? By loving the good news of a righteousness that, that I don't have apart from myself. Yeah? Do you know how I get rid of this self-righteousness? By exalting in this good news that is brought to us through the gospel of Romans. For there is no distinction, Paul says, the unrighteous pagan and the self-righteous religious person. 
all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Church family, this is why Paul was eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Because Christians do not just need the gospel 15 years ago. Christians need the gospel today. You with me? Church, we we need to be rescued from our propensities towards self-righteousness today. We need to know for sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that I belong to Christ and that ought to humble me to the very depths of my soul and cause me to interact differently with people. It changes the... It should change the way I talk to my wife and children. It will change the way I talk to my wife and children as I meditate on the good news of a righteousness that comes from Christ to a man who doesn't deserve it. Yeah? How should it change us? Well, quickly... I think some of this is embedded in the passage and I really want to encourage you to get after this in your study of the passage this week. Whether that be, if you're single, pick a friend, grab somebody else. Men, if it's with your swim buddies, grab your swim buddy, start pulling this apart, thinking about this. How does the gospel change us? How, what things in my life are different because of this truth that I have been given a righteousness that I don't deserve? How does that change me? I would say in verses 1, in verses chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it gives us a humility. The gospel brings us a clear humility. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. We do not have a righteousness of our own. This should change the way I look at the sin of other people. It should change the way I look at sin in my own life. Change my relationships. I am praying, Lord, teach me what it's like to be a bold leader that's profoundly humble in a gospel way like you're teaching us here in the book of Romans. What does that look like? But it does change The gospel brings us a humility. In verses 21 through 22, the gospel also brings us a clarity. This righteousness is received by faith. It's very clear. There's no confusion. By the way, this should, you could also put in your margins or right underneath this note. This also gives us a tremendous amount of confidence. I was going to use that word, but it didn't fit, you know, the alliteration. 
but it's true. It gives us a clarity, but it's that clarity that brings us a confidence because our, our, our identity is rooted in some place other than us. The gospel also brings us a profound sense of unity because whether you are just new to Christ or whether you have been in Christ for a long period of time, whether he, whether his righteousness has been attributed to you last week or it was 30 years ago, regardless whether if you've had it for two weeks or 30 years, it is a righteousness that doesn't belong to you. And that should cause those of us who have been around the faith for longer to react differently to those who have been around the faith for shorter periods of time. And for those who have been around the faith for shorter periods of time, it should give you a confidence to interact with people who have been around it for a long time. Because guess what? They're the same as you. The righteousness that you see might be see born out in their life doesn't belong to them. The gospel brings a tremendous amount of unity. And therefore, verses 24 through 25, the gospel provides a profound sense of centrality. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We center around Him. Yes, church? Our our first um, founding principle, our absolute, the supremacy of Christ. We rally ourselves around Him. Jesus at the center. And then lastly, the gospel gives us a significant amount of energy. I love in verse 26 that it says that he is both just and the justifier. That made me worship this week. He lays hold, all sin is held accountable. He's not letting any of it squeak out. It's going away. His love and His holiness poured out on sin. Look out, here comes, you know, danger Will Robinson. But He doesn't, He's not just making it all happen with His anger and His wrath. He gives us a way out. He justifies us. He's just and the justifier. How does that happen? In one being, in one person. Because He's God. This is good news for us. Yeah, church? This truth changes us today. I've said this before. Tim Keller says, meditate on this until your heart gets hot. I want to encourage you that we should be meditating on the gospel this week until your spirit is doing backflips in your soul and it causes the words coming out of your mouth to be different. One of the ways I would encourage you to do that is by picking up this book. If you're going, "Ah, how do I do that? How do I meditate on the gospel in a way that really gets me thinking? I encourage you, this is a really helpful tool in order to do that. I recommended this a couple of weeks ago. Brother picked it up and he's like, we're doing that as a family. Fantastic. Helping us deeply. So in faith, I bought 10 copies. I'm going to put them on the back. 
You guys can pick them up. If you buy one, then your, your job is to buy another one and bring it next week and put it on the table. Okay? So buy, you take one. Okay? Then go buy another one. You can get them at faithresources.org. And then pick up another one and bring it back and let's pass it along. But let us meditate on this good news of a righteousness that doesn't, that we didn't generate, that doesn't belong to us, that's been given to us by faith in Christ Jesus. Let's meditate on that and let it change us, church. We are saved by both our, from our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. By this good news. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, to Your end, to the end of exalting You, of putting You first, of keeping You central, of being humbled by our sin and yet rejoicing in this great gift that we've received by your goodness to us, through your patience with us. We bring ourselves to you and commit ourselves to meditating on this good news of God, as Paul says. And may it change us today. May this gospel that Paul preached 2,000 years ago still bring change to our hearts and lives. You are worthy and we are thankful. And we pledge ourselves in faith and joy because of all that you have done for us. In Christ our Savior, brother, and King. Amen.